please, please uh, connect with them when you, uh, you know, after, after the service and, and encourage them. All right, well, let, me, let, me pray for, let me pray for us as we get into the Word. Father, we thank you for your, your Word. We thank you that your Word is inerrant. We thank you that it is truth. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We thank you that it's the Word of life. We ask, Lord, that you would enlighten us as we, as we dig into it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we are in a series at the end of the book of Acts, Acts 19 through 28. The theme of these last chapters is the theme, finish strong. God gave the Apostle Paul a purpose in his life. That purpose is God's purpose from the very beginning. That purpose is that Paul would take the good news to all the ethnic groups around the world, the ethne, the Gentiles, the nations. Now, God's been about this purpose from the very beginning. He called Abraham to do this. Daniel, Nehemiah, Esther, they were involved in this. And of course, Jesus said in his last words to the disciples, make disciples to the nations. God wants us to have a heart for the nations. And God is allowing Paul to finish strong in his purpose to influence the nations. Well, guess what? That baton has been slapped into your hand. And God says to you right now, I want you to be an influencer of the nations. God has brought the nations to our doorstep. God has brought the nations to Bartlesville and to Oklahoma and to America. We are, we are now a more diverse culture than ever before. And this poses an opportunity for us to be here in the U.S. and be an influencer to the nations. Now, we talked last week about the way you begin. You start with the right kind of power. And this week, we want to talk about equipping the next generation. Because as soon as Paul is immersed in the right kind of power, the very next thing he does is he models equipping the next generation. Now, to set this up, I, I want to take you to the Atlanta airport. Uh, there are four busiest airports in the world, Atlanta, Beijing, Dubai, and Chicago O'Hare. And these are crazy busy airports. Now, I want you to think about the stats. 100 million people pass through the Atlanta airport every, every year. 800,000 aircraft movements take place every year. It occupies the most space geographically of any airport in the world, and one plane takes off every 45 seconds. If I was the air traffic controller, I'd be thinking, guys, hang on, hang on, I'm not ready for you. It'd be pressure. This is a very busy airport. Now, I want you to imagine a hypothetical for a second. Let's say you could go back in time and you could talk to these two individuals right here, Wilbur and Orville Wright. Just read their biography by David McCulloch. It is fabulous. I highly recommend it. Imagine you could go back and, and look at these guys and say, let's, let's, let's resurrect you guys. Let's bring you back to life. And let's take you back to the Atlanta airport and have you be in the tower. Can you imagine that? 
Wilbur and Orville Wright looking at the Atlanta airport and seeing the immense precision of planes taking off and landing every 45 seconds. Wilbur and Orville are blown away as they're up there in that tower. They're blown away. And what are they saying to each other? They're saying, wow, we really influence the world. Like, we really influence the world generationally. Because of what we did, economies were sustained and they grew. Because of what we did, there are shipments that are made, like overnight. Because of what we did, people can visit their families. We, we really had an impact on the next generation. Now, I, I have to tell you, you have the potential for far greater impact than Wilbur and Orville Wright. You do. Because the impact that you make through discipling, the impact that you make through mentoring, is an eternal impact that lasts forever. So I want you to do another hypothetical with me. Imagine that you are standing before Jesus in heaven, and you see a huge crowd behind Jesus. This is hypothetical. And Jesus gives you a big hug, and you see that crowd behind the risen Christ. And you say, Jesus, like, who are these people? There's a lot of people here. Who are these people? And Jesus says, these are the people that you influenced because you chose to be a disciple maker. You chose to be a mentor. You chose to be a spiritual influencer. These are people that you influenced, and you influenced them generationally and your influence got multiplied massively around the world. And here's the amazing thing about Jesus, is that Jesus can take the smallest and the tiniest efforts for influence, and he can multiply them exponentially, generationally. That's the amazing thing about the risen Christ. If you will just... Pick one person. Jesus will multiply that influence across generations and he will multiply it exponentially so that you have the ability to make an eternal influence. So did God give Paul an epic purpose? Yeah, we'd all say that. Paul had an epic purpose. But I asked, has God given you an epic purpose? And the thing that I would say is he's given you a more epic purpose than the Apostle Paul. Because what Apostle Paul did was he, he began a multiplication ministry and you stand in the aftermath of that multiplication ministry. He's giving you a more epic purpose. Jesus is giving you an epic purpose. He said, the works that I do, you're going to do these also. And greater works will you do because I go to the Father. One of the ways you do greater works is through personal, one-on-one, -on -one, small group, mentoring, disciple-making, spiritual influencing. Because he will take your smallest efforts and he will multiply them generationally and he will multiply them exponentially. And Paul in this passage models a very simple way for how we do that. We're going to see three things that he does. And um, I'm going to give you the model at the end, but it starts with common ground. So if you want to be an equipper if you want to be a disciple maker, if you want to be a spiritual influencer, a mentor, it begins by you finding common ground 
with the people whom you would influence. Acts 20, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board. We went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came to the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was in hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And you read that and you think, what? Why all that detail? Like, why would Luke bother to tell us the itinerary? Doesn't that qualify as just too much information? And the answer to that question is no, it does not. And the reason why is because this literature that we just read constitutes what we would call ancient travel literature. How many of you have ever tuned in and watched Rick Steves and said, I'm going to Europe because Rick Steves gave me a really cool overview of Spain or Italy. Rick Steves, you know, got to be pretty well known. He is a guy who specializes in travelogues and travel literature, and they didn't have those things in the ancient world. There was no Rick Steves. And yet people had the same love for travel that we have. So whenever anybody found any sort of travel literature, they would ransack that travel literature and they would read it slowly and they would dream about where they might go. So uh, this travel literature was, was so popular that people who were going like from Crete to Egypt, they would go to these libraries and get handwritten documents. Like, what can I expect when I go to Alexandria? So while we pass over this very quickly like, yeah, it's boring, these people slowed way, way down. You think about this, he mentions Samos, he mentions Mytilene. Assos is the historic hometown of Aristotle. So they're, they're, they're thinking, wow, cool. Wonder what it would be like to be there. So what is, what is Luke doing? Luke is finding common ground with his reader, Theophilus, and everybody else who would read the book of Acts. He's finding common ground. That common ground is going to enable Luke to be exceptionally skilled at telling the rest of the story, which is about fulfilling your purpose in life. Notice that the Apostle Paul uh, does the same thing. But, but by the way, can I just tell you for a second, what is common ground? Common ground consists of shared areas of interest that form the basis for building a relationship. What are some areas of common ground? Stage of life. You're a young couple with a kid, Child, you got common ground. I'm a grandparent now. Got eight grandkids. I got common ground with every other grandparent out there who's got, who got grandkids. I love it. Common ground. Team sports, same college team, same protein. Personal sports, if you're a golfer, a tennis player, if you are, love sailing, you got common ground. One of the biggest areas is music. What kind of music do you listen to? Everybody's got an opinion about music, and it's not controversial. Oh, I like jazz. Oh, yeah, what, what kind of jazz? I like classical music. Oh, who do you like? 
Common ground is any area of shared interest that forms the foundation for building a relationship. So if Luke's readers love travel literature, Luke is going to tell them what their itinerary was as a basis for common ground as he gives Paul's big vision about the rest of his life. That's Luke's commitment. Now we come to Paul's commitment. Uh, Paul wants to find common ground with his Jewish Christians and with his Jewish non-Christian friends. Look again at verse 16. Paul was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, I want to argue that's Paul finding common ground with the people in Jerusalem. Why was that going to be important? On this particular year, Pentecost fell on May 29th. Paul knew he had a shot at getting there by May 29th, and this particular Pentecost probably marked the 25th anniversary of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This was an important time to get to Jerusalem to celebrate with the believers the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. A lot of common ground between what the Gentiles were encountering and their reception of the Spirit and what the Jews had encountered and their reception of the Spirit. He's finding common ground. He's also going to find common ground with his Jewish non-Christian friends. They weren't always his friends because Pentecost was very important to them as well. Paul wants to be there. Look, people are, Paul's in Greece. Nobody's getting Paul's tweets. They're not getting his Facebook posts. They're not getting Paul's selfies, you know, up there in Athens, you know, against the Parthenon. They're not getting that. So it's important for Paul, especially to find common ground as he goes back to Jerusalem. And the common ground is going to be found uh, in the expression of Pentecost. Now, why was common ground so important? Well, here's the reason why. Paul is coming with a big wad of cash. Cash. There were no debit cards back then. No prepaid travel cards back then. Paul's been raising money for the impoverished people in Jerusalem. Paul is doing what VOM does so well today. He's bringing cash to the persecuted believers in Jerusalem. Now, do you think it would be hard for a Jewish Christian to receive money from a Gentile Christian? You better believe it. That would be very hard. So Paul is finding as much common ground as he can so that he can minister to his Jewish background Christian friends and his Jewish non-believing friends. Common ground's critical. So my son and daughter, uh, <clears throat> son-in-law, well, actually three of our four kids moved to Seattle. And to my, to my sadness, to my, to my horror, they stopped rooting for the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> and they started rooting for the Seattle Mariners and for the Seattle Seahawks. Ugh, how did I raise you? As a Cowboys fan, why did they decide to start rooting for the Seattle Seahawks? Because they're planting a church in Seattle. And if you want to have common ground with people in Seattle, you don't root for the Dallas Cowboys. It didn't quite work with the Thunder, right? Because the Thunder used to be the, the Seattle Supersonics. And my kids still root for the Thunder. 
secretly. <laughs> secretly. Um, when my son Caleb was baptized by my son-in-law, he wore his thunder jersey. I don't know if that's right theologically or not, but that's what he, that's what he did. He wore a thunder jersey, jersey because he loves the thunder. Okay, so common ground is any area of shared interest. And you've got to ask questions. You know, you know, what is your friend's hot button? Everybody's got a hot button issue, right? What is your friend's hot button issue? What fires them up? What do they do at work? How do they use their leisure time? What's going on with their family? How do they do holidays? What sports teams do they follow? What music do they listen to? You ask those questions as you begin to develop a mentoring, disciple-making, influencing relationship with somebody else. You find out what common ground you have, and you build that relationship on common ground. The closer the relationship you have with somebody else, the more impactful your discipleship ministry is going to be. But it starts with, it starts with curiosity. You've got to be curious. And in your curiosity, you can find some, I guarantee you can find some area of common ground. We were in the Moroccan city of Fez. We got into a taxi. My son is talking back and forth, a taxi cab driver in Arabic. They're laughing, they're yucking it up. And I said, what did you guys talk about? And it was all common ground stuff. All common ground stuff. What, what, you know, what, what do you like? What do you do? What, what else do you do? Stuff about the city. It's all common ground stuff. The closer the relationship, the more impactful it will be when you choose to be a disciple maker, a spiritual mentor. And that's true whether it's to your kids, your young kids, to your teenage kids, whether it's a work associate, whoever it is, the closer the relationship, the more impactful the discipleship. So that's the first thing that Paul does. The second thing Paul does is that he expresses a very clear biblical vision to those whom he is discipling. And so what I want to do is I want to give you a seven, seven bullet points of what that clear vision is. But notice what he, what he does in verse 20. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church of Ephesus. And they came to him, and when they came to him, he said to them. Now we stop there because Paul had to send runners from Miletus to Ephesus. It's about 160 miles. I think that's about the length from Bartlesville to Norman, Oklahoma, I think. Not totally sure about that. Um, but uh, it was a two-day trip for them. I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's less than that. But anyway, it's a two-day trip from Miletus to Ephesus. Those pictures are obviously current pictures. It didn't look that way 2,000 years ago. Those are the ruins. But it was a, a two-day trip. Now, you think about this. Paul sends runners to Ephesus. They arrive in Ephesus. They call the elders together. Guys, Paul is in Miletus. He wants you to meet with him. These elders are working full-time jobs in the shops. And they go, okay, we'll shut things down for about four days, five days. Just shut down business. And we'll walk back to Ephesus. We'll hang out with Paul for a day or so. And then we'll take the two days and go back. No problem, we'll do that. They drop everything. And they come back to meet Paul. Now, you think about the logistics of that. How would you feel if somebody came to you and said, hey, your spiritual mentor's in town. He wants you to come see him. Drop everything, get on a plane, and be gone for four days. What would you do? <laughs> Can't do that. 
got family, got responsibilities. These guys did that. And when they approach Paul, they're not going, Paul, this better be a good sermon. You, you better nail this one. Because they had had such common ground and such love for their mentor, they were willing to hear anything that he had to say, especially if it might be his last, his last time with them. So, <clears throat> um, so here, are, here are seven important features that Paul gives for disciple-making. And I'll tell you, I can find no other place in the New Testament where Paul gives his disciple-making strategy more clearly than in this place right here. So, first principle comes from verse 18. I'll read this from the New American Standard. You yourselves know from the first day I set foot among you how I was with you the whole time. That is worded in a very important way. The with you principle comes from Mark 3.14. Jesus gathered his disciples together so they might be with him. First principle of disciple making, you've got to spend time with people. Spend time with them intentionally. Spend time with them prayerfully. Spend time with them with some sort of a plan. It is the with him principle. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, there are time challenges. I remember the first time that I began to be a spiritual mentor to somebody else. Had to be up at 5 o'clock. Met this person at 5.20. We met from 5.20 to 6.30. I wasn't used to getting up that early. I was just out of college. I wasn't used to, but you know what? That's what it required. That seems like nothing to me now. But back then, I thought, okay, uh, I got to step it up and don't do my college waking up late thing. I got I to step it up and get up early. It was inconvenient, but I, that was important. Listen, the, the with him principle is so, so crucial. I, when I was preparing this, I had a flashback of my youngest son, Jared. And I remember very distinctly, before we moved to Bartlesville, Jared was, was, I don't know, like maybe seven, eight years old. Probably seven. And we're sitting on the couch in our living room in Dallas. And we had just finished reading a book. And Jared says, Dad, uh, can, we just, can we just sit for a while? I said, sure, what's, what's up? I was sort of in an agenda for that night. Yeah, sure, what's up? I don't know. I just want to sit. Ah, huh. just want to sit. We sat there for a very, very long time. And I would say after about five minutes, which is a pretty long time when there's silence, about five minutes, he started talking, asking me questions. And the reason why that, that means so much to me is because now that little boy has a son. And when I see the way he treats his son, I don't regret one second I spent with, with him. Not one second. Because I see what I did with him in that small way that day now being multiplied in the life of my grandson. So this with him principle is absolutely crucial. If God calls you to spiritually mentor somebody else, spend time. Spend time. Here's another, another principle, and it's, um, it's the principle of practicing genuine humility. Genuine humility. 
uh, verse 19, I was serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that came upon uh, me through the plots of the Jews. This is not just humility. This is authentic humility. This is transparent humility. This is the kind of humility where you're opening yourself up so people see your insides. They see your guts. They see the real, the real true you. It's based upon emotional intelligence. Now, let me just zero in on emotional intelligence for a second. Disciple makers, particularly these days, have got to be emotionally intelligent. If you meet with somebody and give off the impression, I'm good, came to Jesus 20 years ago. My life's been amazing since then. Things are great right now. You're not gonna have any influence, no influence. Because people are broken. Everybody's broken. Everybody has some aspect of brokenness. And those who don't, maybe aren't in touch with the real them, the real, the real person. But if you will open up and you will talk about your brokenness and Christ's sufficiency in the context of your brokenness, you will have a ministry. In fact, I would suggest that many times it is because of your brokenness that you will have a ministry in the life of somebody else who has been broken in a parallel way. Authenticity is, is absolutely crucial. You know, you look at the people in the Bible and the people in the Bible, uh, some were emotionally intelligent, like Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezra and people like that, and some were emotionally unintelligent. People like Jonah, people like Judas. Sorry, Jonah, for putting you guys in the same category. But they were not emotionally intelligent. God uses emotional intelligence in a big way. Proverbs Chapter 1632 says this, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. If I'm gonna be a big hero in the ancient world, I am going to athletically and militarily take a city. I mean, that's how you got to become like the LeBron James of the ancient world. You took a city. What's better than taking a city? Being emotionally intelligent ruling over your anger, that's better than taking a city. That's where real heroism comes. So if, if you are going to disciple somebody, it's really important to become emotionally intelligent in the power of the Spirit. Here's another thing, um, no fear. In other words, you declare the whole counsel of God even when it's politically incorrect. Here's what he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. In verse 27, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. If you start becoming a spiritual mentor to people, they're going to ask you hard questions. These are some of the questions I hope you wrote down in your three by five card. Hard questions. Questions about God. Questions about marriage, especially these days. Questions about gender identity, especially these days. They're going to ask you hard questions. And if, if you feel like, okay, now I've, I've got to have I gotta be politically correct. I'm gonna water this down a little bit. I don't, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna hurt anybody. I don't wanna offend anybody. I don't wanna make anybody feel like I'm, I'm kind of an idiot. So I'm gonna water this down. That's not declaring the whole counsel of God. And these days, I mean, you know, they're gonna ask about marriage. You gotta be clear about marriage. 
marriage is one man with one woman. The vision is lifelong. That's the vision. doesn't always work out that way, but the vision is one man with one woman. It's heterosexual, monogamous, faithful marriage. That's the vision. That's the vision. And it's not because God is, doesn't like fun. It's because marriage is designed to picture the holy relationships among the Trinity. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist to manifest something of the nature of the triune God. It's a theological thing as well as a practical thing. I can't go into, go into that right now. People are going to ask the same thing about, about gender I- identity. Uh, the whole thing about the bathroom thing. Women in particular need to be protected in locker rooms and bathrooms from those who would exploit them. And to fail to get that in our politically correct culture apparently fails to forget that. To fail to forget that is insanity. But our culture is moving toward insanity. But they're going to ask you questions about that. And it's important as a disciple maker to declare the whole counsel of God, not those things which, which seem like, uh, this is kind of trendy, so I'm going to kind of go in this direction. What I have found over and over again, that as people truly dig into the word, the spirit changes their perspective on things. Talked to somebody some time ago, totally different culture. They, they knew nothing about any commentaries in the Bible. All they had was the New Testament. And they said, if I read the New Testament correctly, this is what I'm forced to conclude. I said, you read it correctly. And who was it that helped the person realize that? The Holy Spirit. The person is reading the Bible in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is going to lead them to truth. Now that They still need a disciple maker. And hopefully you're that person. But God has the power to do that. Um, <clears throat> here's another principle. Uh, create multiple ministry contexts. Create multiple ministry contexts. Verse 21, I testified both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward... Uh, sorry. Paul says, I taught you publicly and from house to house. So they can't just receive from you. It's important that there is one-on-one ministry, but there's got to be a small group. Hopefully, there's a good local church. But when you, do, when you mentor somebody, you can't be the only person who's giving input into their life, as skilled as you might be. Lead them to other podcasts that are good. Lead them into small groups that are good. Take them to seminars that are good. Take them to experiences where they get multiple voices building into their life. Paul did this, and if Paul did this, then we ought to be able to do this as well. So here's, here's the fifth principle, is clarify the gospel. Verse 21, I testified both the Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you circle repentance and faith, what you realize is that Paul, is that Luke, who writes this book, is referring back to the end of his gospel. Because Luke uses the same words at the end of his gospel. Essentially what Luke is doing right here is he's saying, is he's having Paul say, I taught you the gospel. I taught you the good news. I clarified the good news to you, which is the gospel. If you are going to disciple somebody effectively, it's important that you clarify what exactly 
is the good news. What is the good news? I have a very close friend, and he and his wife uh, don't, don't have kids. They're in their 60s, and they spend an enormous amount of time discipling medical school students. They've done this for the past 35 years. And I said, said to my friend, what, what, is the, what is the one thing that you think your, your group that you're discipling needs and does not have? And he says, I'm always amazed that they don't really fully grasp the gospel. We spent a lot of time clarifying what is the good news? What, 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 is, the, what is the cross? You will not be able to plumb the depths of the cross, but you can at least say it correctly. Josh McNall, our teaching pastor, is uh, writing a book on the cross, right? On the atonement. Have you plumbed the depths of that, Josh? <laughs> I, I, don't think, I don't think anybody will plumb the depths of what God did, but you can, you can begin by clarifying the basics as you, disciple, as you disciple somebody. I was blown away by the number of times my North African-based son would just casually share the gospel with the barista at Starbucks, with our guide at the Roman ruins of Volubulus. Um, it just flowed out of his mouth, just flowed out of his mouth. I, and I just, I said to him, I, I am blown away by, by the, he said, Dad, he said, I have people hold me accountable that I'm doing this on a regular basis. Otherwise, it'd be very easy to not do it. <clears throat> Here's the next principle. Next principle is risk. It's important that you, that you as a disciple maker model commitment and risk. Verse 24, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, bound in spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. I don't hold my life of any value as precious to myself if only I might finish my course. That's why we're entitling this whole series, Finish Strong. Paul is finishing strong by getting to Jerusalem and then, and then to Rome. Finish strong. And I want to ask you, are you doing anything as a disciple maker that models commitment, that models risk? So I'll tell you a story. My good friend Ed Schmidt, not here this morning, but um, the story is told of Ed in Cuba driving his car into a hurricane. Now, when Ed tells me the story, it's like he downplays it, like, no big deal, no big deal. I mean, it was a lot of wind, a lot of rain. It was hard to see sometimes on the road, but no big deal, no big deal. Roofs were being blown off, you know, no big deal. I'm... When he arrived... Our partners in the village of Magrabomba were just totally blown away that Ed was there. And they tell the story. Remember the time when Ed drove into a hurricane to see us? Th that made massive differences to them because Ed was modeling commitment and he was modeling risk. If you're going to disciple somebody, sometimes it's helpful to say, wonder what I'm doing to model commitment and risk to the people whom I'm discipling. I ask myself that question. I'm challenged by that question because there have been times when I've done that, but maybe not enough. Um, and then here's 
here's the next one. Uh, it's the importance of warning people about spiritual warfare. Verse 28, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves, you elders, Paul is saying, and to all the flock which, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his blood. Um, because from among you, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, be on the alert. Um, good disciple makers warn others about spiritual warfare. There's three kinds of people in this world. There are sheep, there are wolves, and there are sheepdogs. And disciple makers, by nature, are sheepdogs. They're willing to warn the sheep whom they are discipling about spiritual warfare. Okay, so we start off with common ground. Common ground, that's where you begin. And then we look at the, at the content, the clear biblical content. You don't water anything down. You, you tell it like it is. Now we move to the final and briefly to the culture of honor. If you want to disciple people well, you create a culture of honor. Look, look at how this ends. When he had said these things, he knelt down, he prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on, part of, on the part of them all. They embraced Paul, kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. What do all those words mean? What they mean is they created this environment of honor as Paul was leaving. Look, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, um, they, they could not guarantee that you'd see somebody again. Like, you know, our, our kids go off, you know, and, and like we're texting while they're in the, in, in the plane. You know, we're showing Facebook posts, you know, while they're in the airport. You know, okay, so they leave. You know, we're going to see them again. We're going to, we got multiple venues for seeing them again. FaceTime, Skype, you know, WhatsApp, all these things. We can see them again. We're not worried about that. Not, not true in the ancient world. You leave and you might never see anybody again. Paul says, you're not going to see my face again. So what they do is they manifest this amazing culture of honor. A culture of honor is you treating somebody with respect, with regard, with unconditional love, not because they deserve it, but because you see them as being in Christ. I know people who maybe in the human don't deserve that much respect, but they've come to Christ. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna treat them with a culture of honor, not, not because of them, but because of me. Because I see them as being people who now are in Christ. So here's, here's the end. Here's the end. This passage is like a big half-pound juicy hamburger. The bun on the top is the culture of common ground. The bun on the bottom is the culture of honor. If you want to disciple people, you've got to have a culture around you of common ground and honor. And the meat on the inside is clear, contentful, biblical truth. Biblical truth, how would you feel if you went to like Burger King and, and they just said, I'm giving you the patty, that's it. <laughs> I don't want that. Give me the whole thing. In discipleship, you've got to have the whole thing. You've got to have the culture of honor, the culture of common ground with the meat in the middle. Don't forget the culture that surrounds 
what you do. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father, we bow before you and thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have allowed us to participate in the mission of influencing the nations. God, may we be a church that influences the nations, that has a heart for the nations. May we be that kind of a church. And Lord, may, may, we, may we individually be people who disciple and have spiritual influence. We love you, Lord, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.